At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men of the Green Beret. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of my favorite people to talk to on military affairs has been Douglas McGregor. Douglas McGregor is the kind of person that is almost out of a Greek myth. He is a warrior philosopher. He is a brilliant man who has worn our country's uniform, who has bravely served in battle, and has demonstrated leadership time and again. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel, a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, an author, and a senior fellow at the American Conservative. A whole bunch of other things as well, but we only have a four-hour program. We're not going to list his whole resume. Uh, but at a time when it seems like the world is inching closer and closer, literally, to nuclear war, and yet we have fewer and fewer people that seem to care about this incredible conflict in Eastern Europe, which has the potential to be the same sort of a powder keg as what led to World War One. I, I can't think of anyone that I'd rather talk to at these trying times than Colonel McGregor. Colonel, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thank you for joining me. Sure. By the way, I need to make sure my Greek friends hear this intro. (laughs) They're going to be ecstatic. Uh, Colonel, I think a lot of people have probably heard our previous conversations, and I think a lot of folks know that when it comes to foreign policy and military affairs, my view of the situation is pretty close to where you are, and I largely defer to your expertise on a lot of this stuff. But for people who have not heard your take on the the Russia-Ukraine situation— The bipartisan consensus in Washington has sort of been the following. Russia was eager for territorial expansion. Russia was eager to rebuild the Soviet Union, to restore the states that were formerly part of the USSR. Vladimir Putin is this sort of James Bond villain that's bloodthirsty and that has no qualms about doing things like bombing maternity wards, and he will do whatever it takes to satiate his bloodlust. And Ukraine, uh, their Democrat peace-loving neighbor right next door, didn't attack anybody, didn't do anything, and now they are bravely fighting against this war of Russian aggression. Before we get into the latest of what's happening now and, more importantly, where we go from here, explain to folks why that conventional wisdom is flawed. Oh, boy. Uh, I love that uh, depiction because it's accurate. In fact, that narrative is the 
essentially the theme of the information campaign. It's been running all over the Western world now for months. Uh, the truth is that uh, the Russians in eastern Ukraine have been living as second or third class citizens inside Ukraine, certainly since uh, 2014. They weren't very happy before that uh, because the Ukrainians uh, wanted them to effectively become Ukrainian and renounce any connection whatsoever to Russia, linguistic culture, and so forth. This was a, an issue that came up repeatedly. The Minsk Accords were devised to address it, uh, to essentially promise that the Russians living inside Ukraine would have equal rights, be treated, be treated uh, equally before the law, and that uh, there would be a cessation in the Ukrainian attacks on the so-called breakaway republics, uh, that these republics could have their own language and, and so forth. And the Ukrainians signed this thing. Putin signed it. Uh, the Germans, uh, the French, uh, were heavily engaged in all of this. We supported it, but ultimately none of it happened. There was no effort to address any of it. And then in the meantime, over the last eight, eight and a half years since the regime came to power in Kiev that is ultra-nationalist in character, we have been pouring money and equipment and military assistance on every level into eastern Ukraine to build this Ukrainian army that would eventually retake control of not just the autonomous republics, but would attack and reconquer Crimea. We ended up building the largest army in NATO, uh, 400,000 plus standing forces, uh, another 200,000 plus uh, that were ready reserves, and then again, behind that, a larger National Guard. Effectively, by the time the uh, Russians decided to intervene, there were almost 700,000 people on active duty in the Ukrainian armed forces, armed to the teeth with the best Western weapons that, that we could afford for them. And uh, the Russians essentially saw them as building up to an attack. They hadn't honored any of the uh, stipulations under the agreement of the Minsk Accords, the outcome it was a Russian intervention, but the initial intervention, as Mr. Putin shaped it, was designed to minimize the loss of life because from the very beginning they said, after all, these people in Ukraine are fellow Orthodox Slavs. We're not going in there to kill lots of people. We don't want to destroy lots of infrastructure. So on a front of almost four or 500 miles, you had small packets of Russian troops that moved stealthily into the country with strict orders not to kill or destroy uh, unless it was absolutely necessary. And this, of course, was a disaster because instead of signaling uh, what Mr. Putin wanted to signal, which was the readiness of the Russians to talk, the readiness to negotiate with uh, Kiev or Kiev, instead you got the response that, well, the Russians are weak. They're stupid. They don't know what they're doing. And they actually encouraged uh, tremendous resistance from the regime in Kiev. And so you've got this battle in all these towns and cities where the Ukrainians set themselves up into do-or-die defensive positions, and the war began. And this dragged on for a few months, and it's, it's now entered a very different phase because finally, by the middle of April, I think, President Putin recognized nobody's going to negotiate. Uh, it didn't work. I think he recognized he'd made a strategic error. 
And uh, what you have now is a, an occupation force in all of the Russian-speaking areas with the plan of uh, holding, the, holding these places, defending them against relentless uh, Ukrainian counterattacks and bleeding the Ukrainian army white in the process while the uh, rest of the force is mobilized and built up for major offensive operations, which is really what most of us that looked at the Russians and know how they operate expected back in February. All right. The big question that a lot of folks have been asking, wherever they were on this conflict at the very beginning, leaning more towards the Ukrainian direction, leaning more towards the Russian direction, or like I think a lot of people hoping for some diplomatic solution somewhere in between, a lot of folks are concerned about the increasing talk of nuclear weapons. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what the United States would do and what the United States should do in the event that Russia uses nuclear weapons. We heard from General Petraeus, the former CIA director, who says that um, the U.S. would destroy Russia's troops if Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. If you were still advising the Pentagon these days, what would you suggest the American reaction should be? in the event that Putin used some sort of conventional or tactical nuclear weapon? Well, first of all, the, Mr. Putin's made it very clear the Russians will absolutely not use nuclear weapons under any circumstances unless they are attacked by another country that uses nuclear weapons against them. This has been true from the beginning. It's been stated over and over and over again, and we routinely misquote take things out of context to try and convince people that Putin wants to use nuclear weapons. Nothing could be further from the truth. You've got to stop and consider where you're talking about the use of a nuclear weapon, whether it's a low-yield, five-kiloton, so-called tactical nuclear weapon, just a little smaller than the Hiroshima bomb, or you're talking about large-scale intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, we would not use those on the borders of our country. Mr. Putin is not going to use those things on the borders of his country. And he said so over many, many, many times over the years, specifically about the Baltic states. It's ridiculous. Under no circumstances would we do that. We are the ones that have been fabricating this lie that the Russians are prepared to do it. And they're not. And there are no indicators from the intelligence world that anything that we associate with the readiness to employ nuclear weapons has been undertaken by the Russians. None. The danger right now is primarily the following. There, Mr. Zelensky has been after a nuclear weapon for a long time, long before the war broke out. And once the war got started, there were always whispers of uh, an interest in a nuclear weapon that would be a, a dirty bomb. In other words, taking spent uranium fuel from a conventional nuclear power plant, not uh, the kind of plant that has plutonium or weapons-grade fuel, and uh, detonating a bomb that would spread this around and contaminate an area, cause a lot of radiation sickness, uh, and operate effectively as a bluff, uh, convince people that something nuclear had exploded when it really wasn't weapons-grade uh, uranium, but enough to uh, deter your enemy from going into a particular area, forcing him to go around or something else. Then three weeks ago in the Ukrainian media, there was an announcement uh, from an unnamed spokesman from the Ukrainian government that Mr. Zelensky, as president, had ordered a group of Ukrainian scientists and engineers in Kiev to build such a bomb. 
Uh, initially, people were skeptical, but within the last uh, 10 days or so, there has been increasing evidence that this could be real. And that was the reason that the Russian defense minister called the French defense minister, the Turkish defense minister, and ultimately spoke with the secretary of defense on the phone, expressing concern about this. The outcome was that, uh, you know, you got this commitment from the Western defense ministers that uh, they, they are not supportive of that, that they oppose the use of any nuclear weapon, and then another sort of warning against the warning to the Russians that you better not use anything, which, of course, again, the Russians have made very clear that they won't. And the final point is this. You don't need nuclear weapons now to be effective in war and to do enormous damage. Mm. We have precision guidance. This used to be a monopoly back in 1991 during Desert Storm. We had a monopoly on precision. Today, everybody's got it. And if you look at the strikes that occurred just a few days ago, these massive strikes all across Ukraine, they were precision strikes by missiles, loitering munitions, artillery. It was exactly the kind of thing that we are equally capable of doing and have done in the past. It was a signal that the Russians have got the same technology that we do and can do just as much damage. So you don't need a nuclear weapon, which was always designed to destroy a large area, because you've got the precision that you can go after what is really important to you in the infrastructure. In the case of the Russians, they went after the power grid. And now you have no electricity in Ukraine. Mm. You can't move the trains because you have no electricity to move the trains any longer. The only trains that are moving are being pulled by diesel locomotives, and they're being targeted. Uh, so the situation in Ukraine is, is ugly. Uh, the standard of living has now dropped off precipitously. And access to water is going to become a problem. These are the things that Putin did not want to do when he went into Ukraine in February and what he resisted doing, even though his commanders insisted, you've got to do this. We need to bring this to a quick end. He did not listen and said, no, we are humane. We are not going to engage in that sort of thing. Well, that, that's over. We're in a new phase now. And the next phase in November and December, it's you're talking about major offensives along multiple operational axes coming out of Western Russia, out of Southern Ukraine, and out of Belarusia that are going to be devastating. They will crush everything they encounter. Now, the danger is that we, uh, a la Mr. Petraeus's or General Petraeus's comments, may foolishly try to introduce some of our forces into Western Ukraine, thinking that if we do that, we are going to deter the Russians from acting as I just outlined. And we seem to think that we can drag the Poles and the Romanians with us. The rest of the alliance uh, ostensibly is disinterested. Why? It's why he called it a coalition of the willing to go with us. And that's modeled on what we had in Iraq, the coalition of the willing, because we didn't have French support. We didn't have support from most of the NATO allies. Well, right now, most NATO allies either don't have the forces to send or they have very few or they simply don't want to go. And I would tell you that the vast majority of Europeans are completely disinterested in going to war with Russia because we want to. The exception is Poland and a partial exception appears to be Romania that we'll have to see what happens in the future. But the assumption is those forces could go with us. And the interesting, interesting part of this is we now have 
uh, reports coming in uh, that near Lehman, uh, which was the site of a, a major Ukrainian operation where they lost a lot of troops, they now have large numbers of Polish and Romanian-speaking soldiers in Ukrainian uniform. Now, we knew that we had thousands of Poles in Ukrainian uniform. We knew we had foreigners from various places, mercenaries. But this is the first report that has come in about large numbers of Romanians in mm. Ukrainian uniform. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army colonel and a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's an author. He's a senior fellow at the American Conservative. He was President Trump's uh, nominee at one point to be an ambassador. Uh, Colonel, uh, two-part question here. One, since 2014, the annexation of Crimea, I have not been able to have a conversation about anyone. Um, When I'm talking so-called foreign policy analysts, other media, figures, talk show hosts, rank and file listeners, whomever, without without where where I suggest detente with Russia and a peaceful diplomatic resolution to these hostilities with Russia, where someone does not throw the Neville Chamberlain analogy at me and they say, look, appeasement didn't work with the Nazis. It's not going to work with these guys. The only way to fight back against Russian aggression is through strength. That's the only sort of language that people like Vladimir Putin understand that part one of my question is why that is not accurate and part two is the following Ukraine did voluntarily give up its nuclear weapons so even though uh, Ukraine is not a uh, formal member of NATO at least not at this point don't the western countries and doesn't NATO have at least a moral obligation to defend the Ukrainians if they're invaded since they did give up their nuclear weapons in in the name of peace. Well, let's answer the second one first. No, that's utter nonsense. First of all, the Ukrainians never had nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons belonged to the Soviet armed forces. When Ukraine declared its independence, the Soviet armed forces withdrew from Ukraine and they took the nuclear weapons with them. Do you understand that? That's very important. Ukraine, as an independent country, never had I nuclear see. weapons. I see. So that's the first thing. Second thing, this moral obligation is nonsense. We have no obligation whatsoever in any way, shape, or form to Ukraine. Ukraine is not a treaty ally. It's not part of NATO. We have no obligation to defend it. We have no, as the United States is concerned, no strategic interest, particularly in eastern Ukraine, which is where the war is located. None whatsoever. We have no economic interests, nothing. Uh, We have no history with that country at all. Uh, the bottom line is the, the second question is an absolute no, and that's nonsense. And it sounds wonderful when you're remote from the reality of war, but it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's not something that you ask thousands of Americans to die for, which which is an important aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Now, to go to the first question, I th- you want to repeat just a, in, very quickly what the first one was well, about? Well, it's the uh, – I hear every day the comparison – of my philosophy to Neville Chamberlain and uh, oh yeah the Nazi business and yeah, why is it. that inaccurate? Why is that inaccurate? Well, first of all, this is nine. This is not 1936. We're not dealing with a national socialist state that has declared its determination to effectively conquer Europe. Now, the Nazis were never interested in conquering the world. That's nonsense. But they made no bones about it that they were interested in controlling Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. And uh, Adolf Hitler had written that very clearly in Mein Kampf, 
And the Nazis, again, were very open about their intentions and where they were headed. This is not the same situation whatsoever. Putin is not some sort of crazy Soviet imperialist revanchist. In fact, he said several times, you know, anyone who does not regret the dissolution of the Soviet Union has no heart. Anybody in Russia that wants to bring it back has no brain. That's Vladimir Putin. In other words, forget it. And uh, the man that he admires tremendously, Solzhenitsyn, made the point repeatedly, and he, he agrees with it, that the best thing the Russians ever did was to get out of the business of trying to rule people who were not them. In other words, stop ruling large numbers of non-Russians. Let them rule themselves. He feels strongly about that. Uh, there's no interest whatsoever in that. So the notion that we're dealing with some sort of deranged, uh, overwrought Nazi thug is, is just crazy, crazy beyond belief. If you're looking for anybody who is sympathetic to the Nazis, they're in eastern Ukraine now fighting for Ukraine. Mm. That's one of the most disturbing features of this whole thing. The last thing that part of the world needs is to go back to the Second World War and to the tragedies that that unfolded, particularly in Ukraine, which probably suffered the largest population loss of any country in the war. And uh, But to see all of these Nazi symbols on Ukrainian uniforms, to hear people, uh, you know, say, saying Zieg Heil and all this kind of business, and the thing that no one here is told are the numbers of Russian soldiers that are tortured and murdered by these Nazis. There's no discussion of the civilian populations of Russians that have been rounded up, handcuffed, and shot in the backs of the heads and dumped into ditches, much as what happened when the Nazis went in with the Ukrainian support and killed Jews. We're not hearing any of that. We're hearing this one story, Russians are raping and murdering. Ninety percent of that is absolutely untrue. The Russian troops have behaved remarkably well, very different from the Russians of the Second World War, much closer to the way the Russians behaved under the Tsar. In fact, if I were going to compare today's Russia to anything in the Russian past, I would say certainly czarist Russia in the early part of the 20th century is closer to anything that you see today as opposed to Soviet the Soviet Union. That is dead. That is gone. And it's not coming back. So I would utterly reject that. We have an interest in peace. That's our one interest. We should be intervening now, right away, before Ukraine is utterly and completely destroyed. Because they are being beaten to a pulp. And when you say intervene, you talk about intervene diplomatically to yes. bring about a ceasefire yes. to this situation yes. here. My great fear is that maniacs in Washington will say, well, we'll send our troops in. We'll go into Odessa. We'll go to Lvov, uh, maybe a little further. And we'll go in with the Poles. We'll go with the Romanians. And the Russians will be deterred. That is not going to deter the Russians because the Russians have convinced themselves that we are committed to their destruction, and we are allying ourselves with people in Europe, particularly the Poles, who are openly talking about destroying Russia and have for a long time. So what we're effectively doing is we're creating a nightmare scenario for the Russians. So if we do those things, the Russians are not going to sit quietly by. They'll probably give us two hours to turn around and get out, or we will be considered co-belligerents, and they will destroy us. We're talking about a force of over 700,000 that is building up in various areas around Ukraine in the, in the Russian armed forces in the Western theater. And that force is going to attack in November and December. 
And equally important for people to understand is this 300,000-man mobilization has occurred. They're largely integrated. They're trained. But the mobilization has not stopped because the decision was made not to suspend it out of fear that we, in fact, are bent on going to war with Russia. So by January, it is very reasonable to expect that there will be a million men in the field fighting for Russia. I was uh, very pleased a day and a half ago to read that 30 progressive Democrats had sent a letter to President Biden urging him to bring about a diplomatic end to this crisis. And they made very clear they were blaming Putin. They were blaming Russia. But given the stakes here, namely nuclear war, we need to do what we can to end this war diplomatically. And it was great to see these progressives acting pretty progressive. That lasted all of one day. These <laughs> Democrats, these progressive Democrats actually went about retracting their letter, which was pretty neutered to begin with. It was not exactly a, uh, you know, a, a, a line in the sand kind of a letter. It was pretty timid, I would say. And they retracted it within a day. One of the things that we've seen, a report from the Quincy Institute uh, for Responsible Statecraft shows that under under President Biden, the United States has been engaging engaging in far more arms sales to foreign countries than had uh, gone on previously. Additionally, we're seeing a number of your fellow military officers, colonels, generals uh, and people that were high up in the civilian world in the Pentagon as well going to work for foreign governments. I'm wondering, do you think that the fact that these four major military defense contractors are getting really wealthy while the stock market is experiencing a roller coaster, they've only seen their stock price go up, and the fact that so many of your former colleagues are also getting rich, is that driving at all this this um, desire to continue hostilities with Russia? Well, it's part of it. And remember that whenever money passes to the Department of Defense and then from the Department of Defense to the five big uh, defense monsters that are that constitute the defense industries, that there are, quote unquote, uh, donations uh, that go into PACs that support the congressmen and the senators that are behind the allocation of the money. In other words, this is a self-licking ice cream cone in Washington. When you look at the hard cash, most of it never leaves the United States. It just changes hands and moves in this Mm. sort of circular fashion. So that does have a big impact. But there's something else uh, at work. You have the ideologues at the top uh, who see Russia as the last obstacle to the destruction of what they perceive to be the civilization that they hate. And that civilization is Western Christian culture. They want to get rid of it. The Russians have steadfastly refused to support same-sex marriage. They've steadfastly refused to open their borders to millions of people from what we call the developing world, particularly from the Middle East and Africa. Uh, The Russians are refusing to sign on for the quote-unquote values that are espoused by the uh, World Economic Forum, the WEF. These places, these things are at stake as far as the ideologues in Washington are concerned. The Congress is, I would be frank with you, the senators, they sign on for whatever promises 
to reward them financially and politically. Mm. But when you get into the House, very few people know anything about the, the inf- what's happening over there one way or the other. They, they just don't know. And so they are handed narratives. The narrative may come from the Heritage Foundation. It may come from uh, the Brookings Institute. It may come from the American Enterprise Institute. They read and say, oh, okay, well, Russia's terrible. Russia's horrible. They're committing all these crimes. They deserve to be destroyed. None of these people have been to war. And I'm including large numbers of these people that, that served in Iraq and Afghanistan that were engaged in fighting very weak and capable fighters insurgents over the last 20 years. They haven't seen armies in the field. They haven't seen what massive artillery and air power actually can do and how it can murder, kill mm. hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about high-end conventional warfare on a scale that we have not seen since the Korean War. It will kill large numbers of people. Our forces are not prepared for that. Our forces are not large enough to sustain the casualties and keep fighting. And that's the greatest danger, that if we go in and make ourselves co-belligerents with the Ukrainians in this war with Russia and we take heavy casualties, that's when I fear that people in Washington will say we must respond with nuclear weapons or we will be seen as losing the war. And that's the last thing we want. The danger of someone using a nuclear weapon is not in Moscow. It's in Washington. Mm. Colonel, um, I'm going to have to end it there. I could talk with you all day. I always learn so much whenever we speak. Thank you so much for the time, as always. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for not only your great insight and your great work and being willing to stay up late and talk with me, but thank you for being willing to withstand the slings and arrows of character assassination that I know have been hauled your way, uh, hurled your way uh, time and again for being willing to simply state your opinion and your honest analysis on this subject and a variety of other subjects. Thank you, Colonel. Sure. Thank you, Frank. If you, want, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. This 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.